I'm Nancy. And I'm Catherine. And this is Side Effects. Up until this point, we've talked about how our guests handled the initial shock of the COVID-19 pandemic. And to give you a sneak peek behind the scenes here at Side Effects, we expected the world to have returned somewhat back to normal by this point. But of course that's not what happened. Right now, America is experiencing a second wave of the coronavirus, where case counts are even higher than they were before. And each state is deciding whether or not to return into lockdown to prevent further spread. So what that means for us is, we'll be hearing some stories this week that will not really acknowledge this based on when we taped our interviews. Our first two, speaking with Rudy and Colin, we talked in early May. Our conversation with Jenny was more recent, and we get into recent events like the second wave and the George Floyd protests. But to start, let's hear from Rudy, who spoke with us from California, one of the states hit hardest by the coronavirus after the initial surges in Washington and New York. Caught in between two places, two beautiful faces, temptation, two different subjects, could barely focus on what's up next. I just want rhythm and success, a good time and breakfast. Dark times bring out the brightest hope. My brother looking down at me like that shit was dope. Never let a hard time humble us. After meditation, I don't even know what the problem was. That's Rudy, reading a poem he wrote during the first few weeks of California's statewide lockdown. Rudy is a part of Sacramento State's graduating class of 2020. He works as a part-time student mentor at the Improve Your Tomorrow organization, or IYT for short. In our last episode, we covered how Sac State announced their turn to virtual learning in March, and how the speed at which the pandemic progressed caused a lot of uncertainty. It was difficult to come to a decision on what to do. But after seeing his roommates leave one by one, Rudy chose to pack his bags and move back to Salinas Valley. The poem talks about Rudy's struggle with adjusting to life back home. There was the uncomfortable nature of being alone. When life is so busy and you're constantly working and going to school and being surrounded by people, it's so easy for you, like especially in my line of work, it's so easy to lose sight of myself because I'm constantly giving myself to students. You know, if my roommates want to go, I'm giving my time to them. You know, so it's, it's harder to spend time on myself, you know, just just chill with myself. I mean, and then now during this this time when it's like you're on lockdown, um, you know, all you kind of got is yourself. You got to figure out a way to be busy. Um, you know, do you want to be productive? Do you want to chill? What do you like to do to pass this time? But then there are also times where I feel like I don't want to, I don't even want to be with myself, like, because I write, like, I write music, so I write, like, poetry and stuff. There's times where I don't want to write because I, um, I'm, like, maybe stressed or something, and I feel like, damn, like, what am I going to say? At home, Rudy also dealt with the complicated emotions of grief. After the chaos of moving settled, there was time to process what the future would look like and the laundry list of experiences that would be lost. Among them, the graduation ceremony Rudy had been looking forward to all semester. His initial thoughts swarmed around feelings of anger and hurt at the situation he was dealt. And I just remember just being myself, 
for a few days and and just kind of looking in at myself and just this is a lot to process like I said and that's kind of where my attention was which was um, just focusing on all the negative stuff and actually being uh, kind of controlled by fear I think I think it was um, and, and honestly for the first few days I believe I was working but but I was I was drinking a lot but I wasn't necessarily getting drunk or acting stupid but it was just kind of like me drinking and like just reflecting on it all like first of all my journey what has been taken away from me uh, where do I go now um, feeling the feelings that I felt you know actually feeling them like damn like I feel really sad at this going on in the world but or I feel very I feel very angry that I'm kind of like come on this is my senior year like how is this gonna happen like last year in Sacramento we had the campfire so our our uh, our semester was also cut short because of that it's like come on you know I, I haven't had the traditional university experience because things keep happening so I just keep like diving in these thoughts and trying to see just drinking like damn you know just kind of realizing it all but but I'm not I'm not mad at it either you know, I feel it was just, you know, how I express myself might not be the healthiest way. And I do not recommend that. But for me, that's kind of what worked at the time. And it really allowed me to be honest and just, you know, also pay gratitude for what I've been through. But like I said, overall, I just kind of have that positive outlook, which I usually do. Just that I'm here today and I got to keep going on. You know, I got my students and my family to take care of. That was kind of the moment I turned it, turned it around, to be honest. As a first-generation college student, losing the opportunity of attending commencement meant more than just missing out on a celebration of his accomplishment. Graduating was the culmination of not just Rudy's journey, but his mom's as well. And it served as a greater symbol of hope for his younger siblings and mentees. It's not just for my mom right now anymore. I feel like it's for my little brother and little sister too, because they need a role model. I know what it's like not to have one. My students know what it's like to not have one. I know for a lot of first-generation students, there's a lot of firsts for us. So, like, the first time we fill out a financial aid form, the first time we register for our classes, the first time we go to class, the first time we pick a school, it's like our parents, our parents can't really help us like that because they don't know any of that. It's all foreign to them, you know. Um, so I, I couldn't really ask for help, which is hard. I know a lot of people go through that struggle. All my life, I've been kind of working for this ceremony. And I mean, the commencement's a big deal, you know, just to anybody graduating from anywhere is a huge accomplishment. And at this stage, during this time in my life, it was just going to be the best celebration ever I already know. Um, you know, fortunately, that didn't happen, but I'm kind of glad they closed down schools. I mean, who knows how much more lives have been saved. The virus could have been spread to more people. But overall, you know, I, I knew it's the right decision to make. I knew it was, it was hard for me to, to have to separate myself from school and separate myself from this, you know, um, the celebration I had in my mind. So, you know, disappointed, yeah, but mainly just happy that, you know, that the school took action and, and you know, the betterment for our health. And, and I had no feelings of regret, none at all. I just knew it was, it was the best for everybody. And while Rudy understood and supported the decision to cancel commencement, it was also hard not to carry the raw, honest pain of resentment to be caught up in what could have been. Yeah, honestly. Just the fact that I have, just the fact that I really want life to go back to normal the way it was, you know, bothers me enough. And having to be, you know, on, on lockdown and staying at home and, you know, not being able to travel, hang out with your friends as usual. 
you know, in spring break, I wanted to go to the Grand Canyon so bad. Like, I would have went by myself. Like, I don't care. Um, you know, I was really excited for all that and graduation and this. Of course, I was angry, you know, to have to give all that up. You know, it's it really takes – I feel like I don't know I don't know how to describe it, but a big person or just something to try to understand. It just takes a lot of perspective to realize that all this is for the betterment of the people. So, you know, I swallowed that. You know, I swallowed that pill of truth pretty much. And, you know, I I got to live with it. You know, I'd rather give up a whole summer than, you know, any any other people close to me, you know, because, you know, God forbid. So, of course, I feel that, you know, the just the, the anger, the stress, um, the tiredness, just everything from that comes with this, you know, staying home and not being able to do much. You know, it's, it is very difficult to go through. Sac State ended up announcing to its graduating seniors that it would host a virtual commencement at the end of the semester, while also giving them the opportunity to return the following year, in 2021, for an in-person graduation as well. There's nothing I can do to uh, regain this time back, to get the end of my semester back at Sac State. Um, there's nothing I can do to get that original uh, ceremony back in my own apartment with my own uh, people right there with me. Uh, I, I can't get that back, you know, um, but I accept that and, you know, I'm, I move along accordingly, so it's all good, you know. I, I can't miss what I never had, right? So, you know, it is what it is. Uh, on to the next. Just going back to gratitude. Like, I'm super grateful we're going to have this ceremony. And, like, and I, I'm just trying to make that one better than this. But that's the thing about it, though, too, is if you, if you think about it, it's like, I know when everything's back to normal, because it will be, we're all going to be grateful just to even go outside and, and, like, eat at a restaurant with our friends. Like, so imagine that being able to go to a graduate ceremony that was canceled originally, like everybody's going to be grateful, like unintentionally, right? Just to be there. So that's kind of how I look at it. As a fellow class of 2020 college graduate, I had been hearing my friends grumble at the prospect of a virtual graduation and how it just wouldn't be the same. I also thought about what the online ceremony would look like. Instead of a field full of classmates and friends hooting at each other while we took turns walking across the stage, we would be sitting by ourselves, isolated, staring at a pre-recorded message on our laptops or phones. Would I even have the energy to dress up in my gown and put on my cap? So for me, hearing Rudy's appreciation of even having a virtual commencement was refreshing. I asked him how he was able to develop this mentality while having to deal with so much disappointment. He mentioned how this mindset of being grateful first surfaced when he was in high school going through heartbreak and wanting to find ways to change his life for the better. There was a YouTube video he remembered discovering. And I remember just, uh, I mean, as young as I was, I mean, shit, that was like five years ago or something like that. I don't know. Um, I just kind of YouTube, how do I get over a, heart, a heartbreak? Like, you know, it's, it sounds hella like soft or whatever, but you know, that's the truth. Like, cause I don't know. Like, and that ties back to everything I want to accomplish. How do I become the man I want to be at the end of the day? So. And this guy, I remember this guy just having this video about gratitude. And he's just kind of saying things like, like, if you want 
if you want to be the man you want to be, like live in the purpose you want to be, like kind of get the girl that you want to get, you have to live in your own purpose. And the way to, to do that is through gratitude. Because when you're grateful for what you have, it's like you don't want nothing more. And that kind of opens up for God or the universe to give you more, more opportunities. big dreams you know i want to be able to perform in front of people i want to have mentees i can call and just have this conversation and guide them on the right path help them be successful like i want to put my family on my people on. i have a lot of things to accomplish so how do i do that you know and and that's kind of how i discovered this mentality and just being able to shift my focus like and it's something i still struggle with today like i'd be lying to you if i said that i got it all figured out but i don't because uh, the truth is, there's still times where I'm like, damn, like I still reflect and I'm thinking like, like, fuck, man, like I'm really pissed. I missed out on this opportunity or I messed this up or what if this would have worked out? But, you know, you could do on the past and think what is forever, you know, so that's kind of where that mentality of gratitude comes from. Like, I'm grateful for the moment right now. Then what can we create for the future? And tying that back into school, it's like I wasn't even supposed to be here, like. My mom isn't even supposed to be in this country. Like, I'm not supposed to be in college. Like, I don't want to be here, you know, but but I'm here, you know what? So let's make the best out of it. And I was grateful to be there every day because the thing about living in fear about my family being in takeaway every day is I'm grateful every day that they're there, you know? So it kind of all ties in together. And, and, and that gratitude kind of comes in naturally, you know? So shit, I'm hella grateful we're gonna have a, a graduation ceremony. Like any school can just literally say, you know what? All right, congratulations. We'll send you your diploma. Peace. And, you know, Sac State has been awesome. They've been communicating very well. Um, and, you know, we have a ceremony next year. All right, well, all right then. Well, shit. We're going to go twice as hard for the days that we lost. And, you know, we're just going to make it up. And I'm happy about that because it gets me a year to prepare myself, better myself, and just get involved in my purpose and everything that I've been doing. So I got no complaints about that. It is what it is. Like, obviously, I'm mad, but can't be mad forever because... That's not good for me. And while the undeniable pain of losing the traditional graduation experience will always linger with the class of 2020, Rudy, as always, chooses to repurpose that anger and hurt into something that can be championed. And I went to my, one of my friends, David, he said, we are literally like probably, you know, hopefully the only class that will graduate during the worldwide pandemic. Like that is insane. Like there's not many people who can say that, you know, like. It's a hell of an accomplishment. Rudy Regalado, a recent graduate of Sacramento State. Even as schools make plans for graduation ceremonies next year, the future can feel so uncertain. Next, we'll hear from Colin Wright, who was also put in an uncertain place where he and his wife had to adapt. Looking for a job is hard these days. Now imagine having to do so when the last time you were on the job hunt was before it all was on the internet. Hello everybody, time to check back in. It's uh, three weeks since our furlough and uh, today we had a, a mandatory meeting and well, we uh, both Becky and I were laid off today. Uh, so if you're looking for somebody with 20 years of project management experience, that'd be Becky. If you're looking for somebody with, geez, I don't know, 35 years maybe, IT experience and a whole bunch of management, Unix middleware, lots of security towards the end, look me up. It's hard to do this and not feel some 
uh, grief, I guess. This, this is Colin Wright, speaking from a video he'd uploaded to LinkedIn on April 20th. The last time we talked to him, he'd just received news that he, his wife Becky, and 2,000 other employees would be put out of work as part of the latest round of layoffs at Enterprise. Shortly after, Colin posted this video to share the news with his friends and family. So the first day that we were furloughed was the first day I did one of my walk and talks on the trail. And I really did that, quite frankly, to keep from having to have that conversation 57 times with, you know, moms and aunts and brothers-in-law and, you know, all the family stuff that happens. So it was really around just trying to keep us from having to have that same sort of painful conversation, kind of relive it uh, so many times. So uh, again, I went on the trail and we walked and we talked. That was sort of the beginning of that. Uh, and we've continued to do that every Monday since. While the furlough period, which lasted for about a month, gave Colin time to prepare for the layoff, there were still a lot of things he had to get in order after the fact. Part of it was handling the financial logistics, taking a look at the balance sheets and seeing what extra spending they could cut. They also spent time poring over the Coronavirus Aid, Relief, and Economic Security Act, or CARES Act for short, assessing what benefits applied to them and whether they needed an early withdrawal from the 401k to make ends meet. Of course, another part of all of this was looking for a new job. In the 90s, you'd find out about jobs mostly through word of mouth, but now the pipeline was completely different. You still have recruiters, you still talk to recruiters, you still do resumes and all that kind of stuff. But it was a lot more hands-on, a lot more phone calls and person-to-person -person kind of interaction rather than so much over the website or email or what have you. Monster was probably one of the only places, I guess, at that time where you could really post your resume and hopefully a lot of people would see it. But yeah, those, those sorts of employment sites are different now than they used to be. And there's some that are very specific for things that you could have done 25 years ago because, you know, the gig economy just didn't exist at that time. So there's a lot of different kinds of work than there was at the time and a whole lot more players with regard to getting visibility and getting some, uh, some eyes on your, on your resume that just, just frankly just didn't exist 25 years ago. So it's, it's, it's been a real eye opener. Um, I think I lead every conversation with a new recruiter is, you know, been 25 years since I've done this, uh, and it didn't look like this back then. So help help guide me through what's what's necessary nowadays, and, and we've gone from there. Still, perhaps the most difficult part was dealing with the roller coaster of emotions that came with no longer having a job. One of the things that's been challenging is not not taking that personally, not thinking you know this was done directly just to me. Um, you know, it was done as part of a math problem uh, and, and broadly across a huge uh, population of folks. You got to not take that as a, as a, as a slight to, to, to you. It's hard to say looking for a job is a job. It is, um, but it's not the kind of job that you get that benefit of I accomplished something that's helping a company do something. It's, it's really self-serving in some, in some ways because you're trying to find things for your own self-preservation, all that kind of stuff. Uh, but, you know, we want to be doing stuff. You want to be able to bring value, the value of experience as well as knowledge um, to an organization and affect change that they need and want really badly. There's a ton of value, a ton of self-worth that comes out of that. In the walk and talk videos that he posts online, 
Colin shares candidly about these same difficulties that he shared with us with his network. In these weekly videos, often set against the background of his neighborhood and the chirping of birds, he talks about the ups and downs of his job search. I've had a couple interviews and uh, one's still sort of outstanding. I think it might have some promise, you never know. And uh, I had another that was a kind of outright rejection right after uh, right after the interview. Uh, it was a video interview. It was another, you know, just me and the camera, nobody on the other end. So I was nervous and I don't think I did very well on it. But you know, first interview. Gives updates on his emotional state. I think that's where Becky and I are at right now is we've we've done the grieving. We have figured out a path. We know we're not going to be eating bologna soup come Tuesday. And so it's not comfortable. It's not stable. I mean, we don't feel like we, you know, have it all sorted out. But we have the big problem solved for right now. Now we're just trying and to figure out the employment. And even some of the more commonplace activities that he does day to day. Becky and I have been catching up on a lot of uh, episodic TV binging a lot of stuff taking an episode or two after dinner and last night while the videos started as a way to stay connected with his friends and family they slowly evolved to something more i think the the worth that i've found and it's been totally accidental is these crazy crazy talks that i do every monday uh on on linkedin and facebook i found a ton of value out of that accidentally totally accidentally because I get people that I've never heard of, people I've never met, either commenting or, or making some making some kind of uh, indication that they enjoyed what they heard and that it's got value and that they're finding some nuggets that they can carry along and uh, and use for themselves. I find some value in that, uh, some self-worth in that. Uh, you know, it's not a job where somebody's giving you a task to do, you go do it and you feel great because you got it done. This has all kind of been uh, stuff that's just erupted uh, organically. That's, that's, that's been kind of cool. And it's something I can kind of take and say, Hey, that's mine. Uh, that's, that's an awesome thing. So I think we should talk about the big thing. Um, you got a new gig. I got a new gig, absolutely. In fact, not only did I get a new gig, Becky got a new gig. It's June 29th, Colin's first day as a technical security analyst at Equifax. Two weeks earlier, Colin had announced the good news through another walk and talk video. We both uh, started today with our new employer. So uh, tomorrow will be three months to the day that we were furloughed and two months to the day that we were laid off. So getting something in that kind of time span um, is, is, is pretty cool and, and man, just, just amazing. Um, so yeah, so I'm doing essentially uh, the same kind of work that I was doing before, except I'm not managing people. Becky got a uh, contract to hire gig uh, working at a company here in town. It's a uh, medical company and uh, they're very good about converting their contractors to full time. So uh, we're anticipating that happening sometime in the you know, next few months. So. Yeah, so today was day one for both of us, uh, you know, ancient rookies, both of us now. <laughs> Aside from returning back to work, other bits of normalcy started trickling in. In St. Louis, where Colin and Becky live, COVID cases 
had been stabling over the course of June. The region reopened to 75% capacity in July, and Colin took advantage of that reopening when he could, before cases began rising again, as they did nationwide. My daughter came over last night for dinner. It's the first time we've seen her since her birthday in February. She lives 20, 30 miles from here, maybe something like that. And uh, her business is essential. She uh, is an office manager at a, at a funeral home. And so uh, until we opened up here, she wanted to sort of stay away until that happened. And so, uh, so we had dinner for the first time last night, which was awesome. Absolutely awesome. Um, homemade dinner and all that kind of stuff. Her and the dog laid on the floor and watched TV, which was just cute as cute can be. Normally, you know, not as with parents and kids. You know, kids have their own life. They need to go off and do stuff. So um, typically she'd be here for a couple hours, grab dinner, um, chit-chat a little bit, and then she'd be trying to get on her way. And last night you could tell she didn't want to leave, uh, which was kind of cool. But uh, it was it was a, a nice kind of normal night and, 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 you know, all was sort of normal with the world for about three hours, four hours last night. That normalcy may have been short-lived as America was forced back into lockdown due to a second surge of cases nationwide. That seems to be the case with this year. Every time you think you've got things figured out, suddenly you're back in unfamiliar territory. But at least for Colin, he now knows what his weekdays will look like again, working on technical security systems and hopefully rebuilding the workplace community he had at Enterprise, now at Equifax. Yet, this isn't the case for everyone. Our next guest, who works on the front lines, talks to us about having to adjust over and over and over again. It's wild that we haven't talked in a while. Like, so much has happened. As it seems like every time we talk, life is... Like, so just so much has happened, yeah. <laughs> yeah. When we last heard from Jenny Sai, a first-year medical resident in Connecticut, she told us how the ER where she works had slowed down considerably, to the point where she was bringing books with her to her shifts. That's no longer the case. That was kind of at the beginning of COVID, before things really kind of erupted, but while people were kind of doing their best to stay home and stay away from the hospital, definitely things have kind of picked back up in the ED and we're starting to see normal volumes. I, I definitely wouldn't say things are slow anymore. Since then, two major things have happened. Protests erupted across the country after the killing of George Floyd at the hands of police. And America went headfirst into a second wave of coronavirus. Jenny reminds us that these events are not entirely isolated from one another. In all of our conversations, she has spoken on how entrenched racial bias runs in America to the point that it affects healthcare and who is impacted most by the coronavirus. Another role that Jenny picked up as a result? A medic at protests providing emergency care in case of violence. A little nerve-wracking is my first uh, time street medicking and certainly we had, you know, I watched like a very brief like two-hour training and tried to read up on it. You know, certainly this isn't something that I'm an expert in, but it felt really good because a lot of the other emergency medicine residents and a couple of our faculty were really um, a big part in spearheading this and making sure that, you know, these local protests had some medical equipment and medical help following them. The morning of the protest, 
Jenny's surgical department set out a reminder on protocol for mass casualty provisions, or what to do if the ER became overwhelmed with patients in critical condition. It was frightening. And I think what was very clear to me at the time is that we knew where the violence was going to be coming from if there was violence. We were not worried about protesters starting, you know, a mass casualty situation. We were scared that the police were going to do something that would fill up our emergency department and our surgical department with very serious injuries. Jenny talked about a video which showed police officers at a protest in Asheville destroying a medic tent, stabbing packs of water and stomping them out. We will be enforcing the law. Please leave the area peacefully and you will not be harmed. And that video too was so, it was just destruction with such impunity in a way that, that was so aggressive and so explicit to me. You know, like, we have to destroy these people's water. We have to destroy these people's medical supplies. We have to destroy these people's respite for the protest. I think it's such an example of police really being militarized and the way that they have been trained to view citizens. Fortunately, Jenny's time as a medic went over more or less without incident. Still, much of Jenny's work is devoted to combating the many racial injustices that people of color face in healthcare. In the weeks following George Floyd's death, she and several other physicians got together to write an op-ed for Scientific American titled, George Floyd's Autopsy and the Structural Gaslighting of America. The term gaslighting comes from a mid-20th century play titled Gaslight, where a husband convinces his wife that she is going insane in order to hide his mysterious disappearances even to the point of making her believe that the lights in their apartment are not dimming, it's only her imagination. The term, in modern lexicon, has come to represent a form of psychological abuse, making someone question their own judgment and perception of reality. And the reason that we chose that word was because that's really what happened. We had this manipulation of an autopsy report come out that said, oh, George Floyd was not murdered, he had drugs in his system and he had underlying heart disease. And similar to these gaslights, we had this video of eight minutes and 46 seconds that thousands and thousands of people saw where a man in uniform knelt on a man's neck, shoved his face into the asphalt as he was saying, I can't breathe, I need help. And he became unresponsive, he lost his pulses and he died on the way to the hospital. It, it really makes me emotional just talking about it because I think that it's just, again, the word impunity comes up. To tell an entire country and world at this point and to blame, to try and put the culpability and blame on this man, on George Floyd, on his body for having drugs in his system, when clear as day we saw him being assaulted and being killed in front of our eyes is really psychological torture and it comes with a whole context of people lying and denigrating and you know distrusting people of color vulnerable people all the time to the point where you can't even trust yourself and you start to wonder if you're the problem i think most people 
you know, especially if you hold some sort of marginalized identity, have had an experience with this. In in my experience, it's come a lot from being in medicine and being told I'm not seeing the things that I am witnessing or being told that it's not as serious as I think it is or being told that, oh, you're just being sensitive. And to remember, you know, my reaction coming into medicine at that time as a 22-year-old, as a 23-year-old, as a 24-year-old was never, they're wrong and I'm right as my first reaction, right? My first reaction was always, oh, like, it's it's my fault. I'm I'm stupid. I'm I'm not ready for this. I'm naive. I'm whatever. For Jenny, it's troubling to see this process occurring on a nationwide and even global level. When media networks point to Floyd's body as the cause for his own death, she says it injects harm into the rhetoric around this, as though it could absolve the police officer of the systemic racism he embodies. And so much, again, you know, this proof that it's so system-wide, it's so institutional, it, it has nothing to do with one person's hatred or prejudice, just the entire organizational system of the criminal justice system in America is is rigged. You know, we're we're getting more of these cases, Brianna Taylor, Elijah McLean, and these are cases that happened months ago. And they they would have never come into national conversation if not for a series of events that allowed them to. But it, it does make you think how many instances have just been covered up and their families have this giant bubbling you know cauldron of grief and and loss and they were assaulted they were harmed in a way that they'll never recover from and they will never get justice they will probably be told something similar that they struggled that they had drugs in their system that their loved one did this or that and that kind of gaslighting that kind of psychological manipulation it just even thinking about it or talking about it feels so devastating And you have to realize and consider that it's happened thousands and thousands and thousands of times. This structural gaslighting goes even deeper than the outright murder of Black people in front of America. Jenny sees it every day in her work. It is well known that Black patients are disproportionately discriminated against especially when it comes to pain relief, with as many as half of white medical trainees believing that black people have quote-unquote thicker skin or less sensitive nerve endings. This results in pain medication being withheld purely based on whether or not your clinician believes you're telling the truth about your pain. Your race can also determine how you're diagnosed. Jenny explains how this works in something called GSR, an indicator of kidney function in adults. And so back in the late 20th century, we came up with these modeling curves that said, okay, to come up with a metric of how well your kidney is working, we will do these tests and create this equation. And the authors of that test essentially said, oh, and because Black people have greater muscle mass, this is literally their argument, never proven, they never actually proved it, but because Uh, Black people have greater muscle mass. It means they have higher levels of this thing called creatinine in their blood. And that kind of messes with our calculations. So if you're Black, we're going to multiply your 
um, kidney function level by a factor of 20%. And what that means is instead of saying that your kidney function level is, let's say, like a B plus, by adding 20%, suddenly it becomes an A, an A grade. So there's nothing wrong with your kidney. For anyone who's had their grades go from a B plus to an A, this might seem like a good thing. But differences like this can affect whether or not patients get the treatment they need in time to catch major health issues, like kidney failure. And while Jenny is working hard at researching and uncovering these injustices against people of color seeking treatment, she says now isn't the time to just be catching these problems in hindsight, but also to be looking for ways to stop them before anyone even sets foot in the hospital. The place that we should be investing is not in documenting inequalities. It's combating and challenging them, confronting them directly. As we head towards the second wave in America, it is becoming more and more clear each day that the ability to stay unaffected by COVID-19 is a result of privilege more than anything. We asked Jenny what it meant to be a doctor seeing so many people refusing to wear masks in public to protect themselves and others, a subject that has since become divided along partisan lines. For these people who are like, I can't go grocery shopping in a mask, Um, This is a cloth mask that they're talking about usually. And we wear N95, like actual filtration masks in the hospital for sometimes 14, 16 hours at a time. And those are what we have to wear to keep ourselves safe while treating coronavirus every day. And so you have all these nurses and these doctors with blisters behind their ears, with, you know, these bruises on their face, with these marks on their face. And these are from filtration masks that we have to wear for 16 hours a day. So to hear people say like, oh, I I can't breathe after wearing a a cloth mask to the grocery store is just even initially a little bit like in the context that we're in, knowing that masks are incredibly useful in slowing the spread of this disease, it kind of hurts, frankly. You know, it, it just feels like disrespect. When we spoke with Jenny, America had just broken 100,000 deaths from COVID-19. At the time of recording in July, we are almost at 150,000. Numbers like that are hard to comprehend when we read them. But Jenny had seen firsthand the horrors of the virus and what it is like for someone suffering from the disease to die in the hospital. Fair warning to our listeners, this next clip is a little hard to hear. Here's Jenny. You know, I've had COVID patients come in and they are dying and their families cannot come see them. So I have called families and heard them scream and cry and beg and beg and beg to see their loved one. And we are not allowed to let them do that. You know, I remember calling this person's mom and she drove to the hospital and sat in the parking lot in her car for hours and her loved one died while she sat in this parking lot. And she didn't get to see him. She didn't get to hold his hand. She didn't get to say goodbye. And knowing that, again, across the nation, there are people who get five minutes on on Zoom or FaceTime to say goodbye to their loved ones, or not even. You know, they never come off the vent, so they are sedated and they pass away, and their families didn't get to be there. And then worse than that, 
you have shivas, you have funerals on Zoom. You just, to think about thousands of people dying alone in ICUs with none of their family, none of that picture of, I think, how most people think about dying a good death, you know, peacefully surrounded by family, getting to, you know, partake in last words of wisdom, none of that zero of that. To think about that recapitulated a hundred thousand times and then hear these people screaming about how they can't wear a mask grocery shopping is really, like I said, just probably one of the more devastating things, even beyond witnessing the death itself. Just to know that you don't care enough about that. You don't care enough about other people around you to wear a mask while you go grocery shopping. I think that is, that's what has gutted me more than anything else. Jenny was quoted in an article in the New York Times talking about how much focus there is on the idea of mortality as COVID cases rise in America but deaths lag behind. She's hesitant to attribute this to better care and thinks morbidity rates will rise in the coming weeks. But even if deaths remain constant, this doesn't mean we are completely in the clear. I think a lot of people are going to come out of this with PTSD. And not only in terms of the caretakers, the communities, the the social networks, but also patients themselves are going to have residual changes, right? We're, We're hearing stories about people having significant symptoms even months after their original diagnoses. So even if people aren't necessarily dying from COVID, I, I just, I felt like there was a lot of celebration over, oh, the mortality rates are decreasing, but I, I just feel like the, the consequences are so much more than that, and they shouldn't just be simplified to a death rate. We have to train our eyes on the whole big picture. I think in all of these questions about pandemics, about racism, about social inequity, about care. It's about the big picture. And if we train our eyes only on that one number of death, uh, we're going to miss so much of the, the harm that's really going to come down on society and the harm that's already coming down on society. Jenny Tsai, describing her experience with the second wave of the novel coronavirus as an emergency medical resident. Huge thanks again to our guests Rudy Regalado, Colin Wright, and Jennifer Tsai. And thanks to our listeners for tuning in. We couldn't do it without your support. Our show was produced this week by us. Nancy and Catherine Chu, Joshua Chan, and Sam Yellowhorse Kessler. Make sure to follow us on social media at SideEffectsPod, and check out our new website, SideEffectsPod.com, where you can find custom artwork for each segment by Katrina Wu and Miranda Pan, and transcriptions for each episode. For all of those, it's S-I-D-E-E-F-F-E-C-T-S-P-O-D. Until next time, 
stay safe and healthy. Thanks for tuning in.